Welcome back. This is Chris Arns, and if you've just tuned us in, this is part two of our two-hour interview today on theonomic postmillennialism, also known as uh, Reconstructionism. And we had, for the first hour, John Otis, author of Preaching the Victory of the Gospel and founder of Triumphant Publications. And now we begin our second hour with Jeff Durbin of Apologia Church, in Tempe, Arizona, and he is also the founder of Apologia Radio and Apologia TV. And we're going to hear more about the launching of his new television program on the National Religious Broadcasters Network. But it's my honor and privilege to welcome you back to Iron Sharpens Iron, Jeff Durbin. What's up, Chris? Thanks for having me back, brother. Hey, thanks for being on the on the program. And uh, l- let's hear more about Apologia TV and the NRB Television Network. Well, God's been really, really good to us um, this past year. Um, the uh, Apologia Radio uh, itself as a podcast has doubled in its listenership uh, over the last couple of months, uh, and that's a pretty, that's actually a pretty large increase. Um, we uh, just opened our studio just a few months ago. Uh, God gave us the ability to have our own studio, and so we can produce our own podcast from here and also, also our own television program and uh, just a bunch of other stuff we can do as well. But um, he gave us the ability to do it. Um, it's only been, gosh, it seems like maybe three months or so, um, and we have signed a contract. We are officially uh, scheduled to be on the NRB network uh, nationwide uh, in October twice a week. I believe Thursday and Saturday are the days that we're going to be on. Well, I guess I should uh, consider myself a prophet because, as you know, I left a lengthy yeah. voicemail message for you after the first time seeing the broadcast you did with Dr. James R. White, our mutual friend at Alpha and Omega Ministries, and also Michael Brown when you were doing a response to the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage. And I told you, this has got to be on NRB. You, you did such a phenomenal job, not only because of the content, but because of the graphics, the camera work. Everything about the program was more professional than the majority of things I've seen on television, perhaps especially Christian television. Well, I'm, I'm really blessed to hear you say that and, and grateful. And, and a lot of that has to go, of course, to God's uh, unique gifting in, uh, in Marcus Pittman. He, uh, he moved out here, um, gosh, what was it? Marcus, what was that? What's that? April? April. Marcus moved out here in April. Uh, I'm in our studio right now. He's nodding at me through the glass. Um, April, he moved out here. And, um, since then, we've just been able to, uh, change the quality of what we do, which we, we, we want to do everything to the glory of God. And we want to make sure the media that we're putting out um, is on par and even better than what the world puts out. And so we're doing our best with, at the time, limited resources, um, but we're just excited about what God is going to continue to do as we're able to um, even get better technology and things like that. But that blessed me because um, Dr. White's a gift. He's a, he's a friend, and he's one of my heroes of the faith, and Dr. Brown is a, is a gift. And I love those men dearly, and uh, being able to do that was, was something we really thought was important. And uh, we got a lot of really great feedback, um, just like yours. And I wasn't able to get back to you when you sent that message to me. Um, I was uh, in uh, Kauai, actually. We're uh, trying to do a church plant right now in Kauai, so I wasn't able to call you back to let you know, hey, dude, we're already on. Hey, well, that's quite all right. And uh, obviously I have a lot uh, to go or a long way to go before I match any kind of professional quality as far as the technical aspect of my show. Uh, but that is uh, something that I hope to eventually achieve as well. Uh, right, right now we have a very humble situation here in the studio, but God willing that will improve. And we already have many generous people who want to see that happen. Uh, well, you have- is though is you have a quality product. It's 
what you're putting out. <laughs> so it's okay if the, if the audio is a little, you know, scratchy. We've, we've been through all those same things, so. <laughs> well, apparently the people hearing the program hear me a lot better than you are hearing me right now for some reason. So I don't know why that is. That's a typical complaint of the phone guests that I come through a little scratchy, but it's not that way on the recordings or the broadcast for some reason. I don't know. We are going to have a uh, a professional studio technician go over this with a fine-tooth comb. But if you could, uh, for those of our listeners who missed your last visit with us, if you could go over a brief description of Apologia Church. Absolutely. Um, Apologia Church um, is a new-ish church plant uh, in Tempe, Arizona. We planted about five and a half years ago, um, going on six years actually now, and uh, we planted out of a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. Um, I was a pastor at a church in Phoenix, and I uh, was also a pastor, the chaplain at the hospital, and so many people were coming to Christ um, at this hospital that it became really, really clear to us that God was calling us to have a unique place to be able to shepherd them and care for them, because we were having a difficult time uh, placing some of these people with these unique struggles in local churches. They were asking us, well, what do I do with them? And so... Um, it became clear. Um, I fought against God a bunch. I had no plans ever of planting a church. Um, I had no vision of that, no thought to do that ever. And uh, so I really kind of fought against God uh, for a while, and I had uh, some really great men of God that spoke into my life that know me, uh, that know my giftings, they know my own um, shortcomings. They spoke into my life, uh, seminary professors, pastors, and they just basically all told me, Jeff, God's calling you to do this. And you need to go, or or you're in sin. <laughs> and so, um, the elders of the church that I was at uh, laid hands on me, and um, I resigned from my position as pastor at the church I was at, and to go and, and do this work. We started at zero. Um, we started really with the the church I was at couldn't offer any financial help. We didn't have any financial help. It was just something we took a big step of faith in, and uh, just going to trust God with this. And we started in this family building at a hospital five and a half years ago, and as of right now, on a Sunday, if everyone is there at once, maybe 200 people, um, God just really blessed it. And out of Apologia Church came just a host of other ministries. The Red Door Ministry is our ministry outreach to abortion clinics. Um, we've helped to, tr- to raise up ministries to abortion mills across the nation. Um, our church alone knows of over 40 babies saved from death in two years from our ministry. Wow. And that's count the dozens of ministries that have popped up across the nation as a result of listening to us and hearing us and, and getting instruction, things like that. We also go out to the local Mormon temple. Um, I was given a lot of inspiration by Dr. White to do that sort of work. Um, we do a lot of local outreach, and we have Apologia Radio and Apologia TV and TV and studios. And that's just basically weekly content of engaging uh, the culture with the gospel. Uh, we hit political issues with the Word of God. We hit uh, cultural issues, we hit uh, church issues with the gospel, and we invite on some of the most amazing guests and my heroes that on the show I get to listen to and talk to. And uh, now we're doing it also with Apologia TV. And so our goal is to bring glory to Christ, uh, to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth, and uh, to see really the world changed and shaped by his gospel. And you are going to be uh, speaking here locally, God willing, in October with the Herald Society uh, for the Philadelphia area Herald Society. Can you tell us something about that? You know, am I booked for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you are on the, uh, I think you are on the website. But 
okay. All right. Well, I uh, I did I just I did Philly last year. Um, I know that I am doing the Bonson Conference, uh, which is unique because that kind of fits with our topic for today. But I am doing the uh, Bonson Conference in October in California, and I've got some other things planned as well. I, I may be doing uh, Philly. I'm not I'm not sure. I, I love Jeff Rose. He's a good good friend of mine. And I'm, I'm always honored to do stuff with him. So if I'm on the uh, if I'm on the ticket, I guess I'm I'm going to show up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you are. And uh, for everybody uh, interested in that uh, conference, which got, which I have been humbled and honored to be invited to be the MC of that conference uh, in, in October, go to uh, JeremiahCry.com. Excellent, Jeremiah. Yeah, I mean- go ahead. I'm sorry. I do want to say that if anybody wants to see a gathering of very, very godly men committed to the public proclamation of the gospel, I, and I mean this when I say this, there is no better organization in my mind than the Herald Society and Jeff Rose. Those are just um, amazing men of God committed to the gospel. They're solidly reformed, um, and I, it's always an honor to be among those men. Um, and I, I, didn't I, I did one with Dr. White in, uh, in uh, what was that? April. That was in April in Florida. Florida, in Florida. Yeah. So I mean, I I love those men, and it's just an honor. So. And that'll be October twenty second through the twenty fourth, and among the speakers are Al Baker, who I had on the old Iron Sharpens Iron program, Jeff Rose, as we mentioned, Jeffrey Kirkland, who I have not met yet, Tony Miano, who has been on my broadcast before, did a great job talking about how Calvinism does not uh, diminish uh, evangelistic zeal. And others. So, and hopefully Jeff Durbin, but we're not sure about that yet. <laughs> but, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. I said, I'll go if I, if I'm invited, I'll be there. Okay, great. Uh, let me repeat our, uh, email address. We do have some listeners who have already emailed us questions now that I will get to in a minute. Uh, but our email address is chrisarnzen at gmail.com, C-H-R-I-S-A-R-N-Z-E-N at gmail.com. Please include your first name city and state, and your country if you live outside of the U.S. And I see that we've already got a listener from Sydney, Australia, who's emailed us a question for you, Jeff. But uh, uh, going back to uh, theonomy and Reconstructionism, do you, I don't know if you were able to hear our original guest, John Otis's description, but if you could uh, provide for us a summary of what that means to you, theonomy and Reconstruction. Absolutely. Um well, for, for me, I'm not in any way jealous for the terms. Um, so I don't necessarily want to introduce myself to somebody as, hey, I'm just the theonomist or the reconstructionist, because I'm not jealous for the, for the title. Um, I, I really am, I think, committed to the principles and the truths that are behind those uh, systems of thought. And so for me, um, the discussion really is about the kingdom of Christ. It is about the kingdom of the Messiah. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, you have a really full-orb description of what the world is to expect God to be doing with the Messiah in his redemptive work and in his rule. So from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you see progress in history. You see the kingdom of God coming as a small thing that brings increase. So you see Daniel chapter 2, a stone that becomes a mountain. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, you see of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You see an increase there. Jesus comes in. He declares himself to be the king. He says that he brought his kingdom. He says to the Jews, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then 
the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, he did, so the kingdom of God had come upon them. The apostles re- repeat uh, over and over and over again that Christ has made us a kingdom, that his kingdom has actually arrived in history. Um, Jesus said that it would be like a mustard seed that became a tree, or like leaven in a lump of dough that eventually permeated the entirety of the loaf. So for me, it's about the rule of Christ as an actual present reality in time and in space. And the picture the Bible gives to us of the total victory of the Messiah, I think, is undeniable. Um, I think that the Bible tells us that this Messiah would bring a kingdom that brought all the nations, that Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars, that the nations, Isaiah 2, would stream up to the mountain of God, that um, the knowledge of God would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, that he would have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The Bible, I think, tells us without any doubt at all that he would have dominion and a kingdom that would never be destroyed, that's Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Um, so it's about the kingdom of Christ. Did he bring it on time and as promised, as planned? I say yes, and I think that the Bible describes that the blessings of that kingdom are so far-reaching that Psalm 110.1 becomes the premier Bible verse quoted from in the New Testament from the Old, and that is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, very clearly, that Jesus, he must reign, he's reigning now, according to Paul, until all of his enemies, that's all of his enemies, are put under his feet as a footstool for his feet, and the very last enemy is going to be finally death, and that's where Jesus returns for the final resurrection, but it's every enemy and then death. And so I see total victory, and then when it comes to the question of the law of God, I think that we have to come to terms with the fact that the law of God is a, is a part of the promise of the kingdom of God in history. And what I mean by that is that it's God by his spirit. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one that God would have his law now internalized by the people of God. It would actually now be an internal thing, not stone tablets outside the people of God, but internalized. Isaiah 2 specifically says that in this messianic kingdom, while the nations stream up to the mountain of God, which means, by the way, they're being drawn by God, that the law the law would go forth from Zion. That's the Torah would go forth from Zion. That's in the Messianic kingdom, which Jesus says that he brought. The apostles say Jesus brought. Um, and you also have, I think, very, very clearly, the display of the fact that in the Messianic kingdom, in the time of his kingdom, justice is an issue. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, that's a popular Christmas verse on our card, so we know it well. And in that passage, it says that, that in this kingdom of the Messiah, when it comes to bring an increase of the government and peace, that it would be justice. There would be justice there. And then Isaiah 42 is a very detailed passage in just as one example that part of God's plan for the Messiah's kingdom is to bring justice in the world. So I'll give you an example. Isaiah 42, it says this, verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And listen to this, and the close, and the coastlands wait for his law. And so I think that we can't really get away from the fact that the law of God is an integral part of what God is doing to bring, to bring about his glory in the world. It starts with salvation. Jesus accomplished that all by his work alone, through him alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. It's to the glory of God alone. It's God's work in bringing salvation. Jesus accomplished that. But as Reformed folks, I think this is a given for us. I, I hope it is. As Reformed folks, we believe that God doesn't simply nod his hat at you and tip his hat at you and say, okay, you're saved for heaven one day. No, there's regeneration. 
There's a removal of a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. There's Ezekiel 36, a premier passage for reformed exegete, where it says very clearly that God is going to cleanse us of our idols. He says he'll put his spirit within us and cause us to obey his statutes. Well, I think when you come to the question of theonomy, it just means God's law. What we would say is, is as the gospel goes forth, and the Great Commission, which is not just wishful thinking, but is actually fulfilled, when it's being fulfilled, people experience salvation, they are regenerated, and the law of God now is something that captivates them. It's actually something that is within them, and they are motivated by God's Spirit and empowered by God's Spirit to actually accomplish the things of the law. And Paul says this, and I'll stop talking here after this, but this is, this is my point of the law of God. Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? No, we establish the law, and he says this, that now in the Spirit and no longer in the flesh, we can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is fundamentally love does no harm to its neighbor. So what am I saying when I say theonomy, reconstruction? I just believe this. The gospel transforms real people. And as the gospel transforms real people in the real world, those people actually love the things of God and the law of God, and they look to God and his standards for justice. I am hostile to any idea that the law of God would save anybody. I am hostile to any idea that the law of God has dropped on society in some sense, but I am committed to the gospel as a transforming power in the world to change people into people who love God's law. My point is this. When God saves people, they become Psalm 119 kind of people, and that's the work of God. And as that's fleshed out on the earth, and the law goes forth from Zion, the world looks like a redeemed world that loves Jesus and obeys him. And when they say, well, geez, what should we do here for justice? They're not going to be autonomous. They're not going to just decide on their own. Well, I think we should do this. What do you think? I think we're going to look to God's word and say, well, what would God say here? What are his standards? Um, so what, and, and, and I'm, a, I'm a general equity kind of guy. So when you look at the law of God, I say, well, what, is, what does God say, and how does that apply in principle to today's society? And uh, so uh, before I uh, get to specifically to the penal code, I'm assuming from what you just said, you would obviously reject the accusation that this is just another form of Judaizing. I... When I, well, here's the thing, Chris, and I mean this with respect to my brothers that would make that sort of a claim and with a lot of love and grace towards them. When people say things like that, um, when they try to make a claim of Judaizing, I think it demonstrates something about whether or not they've spent time trying to understand uh, what somebody is saying. So, for example, one of the things I've learned a lot from my friend, Dr. James White, who's my hero of the faith, and he knows that, is he's taught me in all of his years of ministry that I've watched him, then make sure you accurately represent your opponent. Um, we don't honor the Lord of truth when, when we're trying to critique somebody when we misrepresent their position. And you will find the most strenuous um, denouncement of that idea from every person I have ever read on this issue that, that is a proponent of it. Um, the law of God can save nobody. The law of God put over people will save nobody. If you drop the law of God on society today, it will not save them. It will not make them into redeemed people. But it is God's standard nonetheless. 
And we all, listen, we all actually get this. For example, this past weekend, um, across the nation, people went out to Planned Parenthood, right? Christians did, mm-hmm. on the sidewalk, to call out to them. And what did we say to them? We said, you shall not murder. That is God's standard. You shall not murder. Now, whether or not they obey that is another issue, but that doesn't change the fact that that is actually God's standard. My hope is that, as that is an example, we apply the law of God in that context so that we can bring the gospel into that context in hopes that as the gospel transforms those people, they no longer love death, and they end up loving the law of God, and they say, well, we, we need to obey God's law here. And I do hope, I do hope that one day in the future, as the world is transformed in the Great Commission, as Christ calls us to, I do hope that one day we have a civil magistrate that is actually operating, as Romans 13 says, as God's deacon or as his servant. And they look to God's law and they say this, listen, any mother or father that would execute their own child in this way and kill their own child, um, they deserve, as a judicial penalty, what God says murderers deserve. Now, we're not there yet, um, and there's always grace and compassion and mercy for those who have committed this act. It's Christ who saves sinners. But I hope that as the world's transformed by the gospel, that we look to God's standards and we no longer allow for this sort of thing, but that we actually say, no, we need to honor God here and we're not going to allow for for murder. And I'm assuming you uh, are envisioning, as uh, John Otis had mentioned uh, during the first hour, that this is going to be the government using the sword, and I'm using that term sword figuratively as the scriptures do. Um, the uh, not you're not talking about vigilantism. You're not talking about private uh, executions taking place in people's homes, etc. Yeah, that would be actually a violation of God's law. Right. And this this is, thing is very important to recognize when we talk about theonomy and the law of God in a culture to say that the church has anything to do with the the actual bringing to bear the judicial sanctions that God says are righteous and holy. I mean, that's that's an amazing leap because the law of God actually is the is the thing that gives us the distinction between the church and the state. There is no crossing over. The church has no right to get involved in the specific sphere of sovereignty of the state that God established. And there's a distinction there that in the law of God, the law makes the distinction. And so the church is called to bring the gospel to the world and offer the forgiveness of Christ and call people to repentance and faith. But this, the civil magistrate has their position before God. And you, you said it, Chris, Romans 13. And it specifically says that the, the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, and he is God's deacon. He is God's servant for your good, and he does carry out the wrath of God. And so here's the question you would ask, is do we want the state to carry out the wrath of some other God? Do we want the state to carry out unjust penalties? Or do we want the state to honor God as God's servant, as, as his ordained sphere and institution for justice? And I, I want to say yes. As an example, Chris, and this, I think people, this might help people a lot with this discussion, in Romans 13, when Paul says to be to subject to the governing authorities, and he says that the, the civil magistrate in this described here is God's servant, um, we have to think about this for a second. Really? Like in Paul's day, Rome was acting as God's servant? I mean, I think they cut his head off. Like, <laughs> so we have that question. Okay, is that, is that prescriptive or descriptive? And I think it's just very clear 
Well, it's prescriptive. The role of the civil magistrate, according to God and the law of God, is to bring the sword of God, the sword of justice, to bear in a society. And so that's the specific sphere of, of the civil magistrate. That's their job. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what people will often say is, are Jeff, are you saying that, that somebody that's, that, that kills somebody, you don't want to give the gospel to them? Like, what about grace? What about forgiveness? And I'm going to say to that, goodness gracious, no, like, the gospel is for all of us. God saves murderers. He forgives them. But we don't say that the civil magistrate no longer has a role and God is no longer concerned with justice in the world for victims. I'll give you an example, and I think this will help people. Let's say, for example, there was a guy. You were out with your friend uh, drinking a cup of coffee, and a guy comes running down the sidewalk, and he's carrying a television under his arm. And he's, he's sweating, and he's, you know, he's panicked. And you stop the guy and say, hey, what's going on? And, and you find out this guy is just, he just robbed someplace. And you start preaching the gospel to him. You need to repent of your sin. You need to come to Christ. He died for sinners. He rose from the dead. He calls you to turn from your sin to trust in him for eternal life. And then all of a sudden, right there, God opens his eyes, and he believes. Now, five minutes later, after this man turns to Christ, police cars come cruising up, and they you know, jump out of the car, and they pull their guns out and say, you know, get on the ground. Now, it would be intellectually inept and unbiblical if we walk over to the police officers and we, officers and we say, Officer, officer, you don't understand. He just got saved. There are no more penalties. There's no more victims' rights. He just came to Christ. He's saved now. Like, we understand there's a difference between somebody experiencing salvation and actual justice being done in the world by the specific sphere of the civil magistrate. Those are two different things. And as a Christian who holds to the law of God as continually, continuously relevant today, um, I believe that the church has a responsibility to bring the gospel to the world, and the civil magistrate, Romans 13, has the specific role of making sure they establish justice in a society. And we don't blend those two spheres. They can talk to each other. The church can prophetically speak to the civil magistrate, but we are not to bring forth any of the civil sanctions that God calls us to, to pay attention to. And we want to thank our listeners for being very patient, for uh, waiting for your questions to be answered that you've emailed in, and we will get to those when we return from our break. If any more of you would like to join us, it's chrisarnson at gmail.com, chrisarnson at gmail.com. Please give us your first name, city and state, and your country of residence if you live outside the USA. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, Give yourself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Solid Ground Christian Books is a publisher and book distributor who takes these words of the Prince of Preachers to heart. The mission of Solid Ground Christian Books is to bring back treasures of the past to minister to Christians in the present and future, and to publish new titles that address burning issues in the church and the world. Since its beginning in 2001, Solid Ground has been committed to publish God-centered, Christ-exalting books for all ages. We invite you to go treasure hunting at solid-ground-books.com. That's solid-ground-books.com and see what priceless literary gems from the past or present you can unearth from Solid Ground. Solid Ground Christian Books is honored to be a weekly sponsor of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. Hi, I'm Mike Gallagher. Support for Iron Sharpens Iron Radio comes from Thriving Financial 
where faith and finances connect for good. Thriven helps its members be wise with money and live generously. Nearly 2.5 million Christians count on Thriven to help them protect their families and strengthen the communities where they live, work, and worship. To learn more about what makes Thrivent unique, contact me at 717-254-6433. Lending faith, finances, and generosity. That's the Thrivent story. Welcome back. This is Chris Arns, and if you've just tuned us in, we are discussing theonomic postmillennialism and Reconstructionism today on our final day of the Eschatology Marathon. And today, for the second hour, our guest is Jeff Durbin of Apologia Church, Apologia Radio, and Apologia TV. Our email address is chrisarnzen at gmail.com, chrisarnzen at gmail.com. And just before I go to our listener questions, uh, we have one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture as you fully well know well uh jeff in first corinthians 6 uh do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god and that is what some of you were but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And it seems that the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as if the new covenant, the new covenant, which is a new and better covenant, it seems that although God is the same in the old and in the new, unlike with the way some people try to pit the God of the old covenant against the God of the new as if they are two different gods. One is mean and nasty and harsh and wrathful and one is loving and sweet and kind. But we know that God is the same, but we know, we, we see that it seems that the, the, de- the way he deals with his people is different. And that seems to be a, pa- a passage that gives us an example of the church being more concerned with repentance and salvation than justice, and if you could uh, just comment on that. Absolutely. Now, it's a very important question, and I understand when people bring it up because it's something I've had to work through myself, and I want to say that, that we need to pay attention to a couple foundational things. One is that if the Old Testament does display for us that in the New Covenant, in the Messiah's kingdom, when it's present on the earth, and that's where the New Testament apostles put Jesus as reigning now in his kingdom, um, we see that justice and the law of God are going to be part of that kingdom. Isaiah 42, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah 9. Um, we, so we see that that's, that's on display clearly. That's what God is going to do in the earth. It's full orb. First Corinthians 15, um, everything is going to be put into subjection to Jesus, all enemies under his feet. That includes everything. And so we can't say that there's anything outside of his realm of authority Jesus, Matthew 28, 18-20, has all authority in heaven and on earth, and I would say that authority on earth is also over the sphere of civil government. Now, Paul confirms that fact in Romans 13 when post-ascension, post-cross, post-resurrection, he says in Romans 13 that the civil magistrate is God's deacon. That's New Testament. That's his specific role now. 
so I would say that the, that's not there's no there's no um, war going on there between the concepts. Now, when the Apostle Paul is speaking in a church context and he talks to people who have been forgiven of their sin, that makes perfect sense and is in the church context. He's not speaking about the civil magistrate or their role. And if you look at First Timothy uh, chapter one, in First Timothy chapter one, starting in verse eight, Paul says, "Post cross, post resurrection, post ascension." He says, "Now we know that the law is good, is good." if one uses it lawfully. This is, again, post-resurrection. He says, understanding that, that the law is not laid down, is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Now watch what he does here. He says, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers. He is listing there actual crimes from the Old Testament law from the Torah, that actually carry with them the, the um, civil sanction of the death penalty. And he, he says this post-resurrection, post-ascension, with Jesus reigning, it is good, it is laid down for the lawless and disobedient, and he's calling all of those civil sanctions good. And again, that's post-resurrection. And I would point to one other major thing that I think we need to all pay very close attention to. In Acts 25.11, the Apostle Paul here is on trial, and he says this, For if I am an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, now this is Paul who knows the gospel, this is Paul who's saved, he's forgiven of his sins. He says, I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things of what these men accuse me of, no one can deliver me to them. This is important. The Apostle Paul, in tri under trial, actually says that, look, if I'm guilty of anything, as a Christian, I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I don't object to dying. You see, he's not going to say, as a Christian, the law of God is no longer good, the law of God is no longer relevant. He says, in the New Testament era, under the New Covenant, look, if I've done anything worthy of death, then I don't object to dying. Now, the charges, this is really important, the charges that were specifically brought against the Apostle Paul here, they were brought um, through a series of trials, and they were initially brought before the Sanhedrin um, and uh, the Festus by the Jews in Jerusalem, and that's back in Acts 25, 1 through 2. And so the interesting thing here is that the nature of these charges, what was being lobbed against him, the accusation itself was really specifically about the profanation of the temple, it was about the ringleader of the sect of the Jews, and so these are very Jewish charges being brought against the Apostle Paul. Now think, Paul, New Covenant, uh, New Testament era, Paul, under the rule of Christ, who is saved and forgiven, he does not take this opportunity to tell people, guys, those things are no longer relevant, God is no longer concerned. Now, this would be a premier opportunity, a premier opportunity with Paul under trial to actually say, guys, let me preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to know that those standards are no longer God's standards. No, he actually says exactly the opposite. He says, look, if I've done anything worthy of death, and I don't object to dying. And these charges that are being brought against them are, are essentially Jewish, like, law-like charges. And he's saying, look, if I've done something worthy of death, then I, don't, then I don't object to dying. And that's as a Christian. That's the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that talks to people who says, such were some of you, but you were washed and you were justified. See, I think the problem here is that we can't think in categories properly we, we're only thinking in one category, but the Bible actually gives us different spheres of government and sovereignty. 
There's the individual, there's the family, there's the church, there's the state. That's, those are God-ordained spheres of authority, and you find that throughout the scriptures. And what happens is, is that we typically start to blend those spheres when we have this discussion. I, here's what I say. I think we need to think in proper categories that the Bible gives to us. I don't think that we need to say, well, Jesus saved sinners, so God is no longer concerned with justice in the world. No, he, he, he is very much concerned with justice in the world. He says as much throughout his word, from beginning to end. He charges people with violations of his law. He commands people to turn to him and to experience redemption and to obey him and love his law. And with Jesus as the king, which every Christian has to acknowledge, with Jesus as the king, with all authority, in heaven, and here's the part we all miss, and on earth, I think we need to begin asking ourselves the question, um, is the civil magistrate under the feet of Jesus and under his authority? I say yes to that. And I say that the hope is, is that through the proclamation of the gospel and the redemption of sinners, people will, in all those spheres, eventually honor and glorify God. And I hope that we would look to the law of God for the standards of justice, rather, t- rather than demand autonomous standards. And uh, just going back to something you said before the break in uh, keeping with the uh, attempt to not misrepresent anybody, we do want to make a clear uh, distinction between uh, our mutual friend, Dr. James R. White, and theonomy, because he is not a theonomist. Uh, he's an amillennialist and a Reformed Baptist. But I just want, wanted to make sure our, our listeners didn't think, due yeah. to your, your, your uh, mention of him earlier, that he was a theonomist. Yeah, Dr. White and I um, have had lunch together and meals together, and we've 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 had a little bit of discussion on this, not not a whole lot. And um, I, here's here's I know there are distinctions and differences, but for for me, um, I don't think that many of us are as far apart on this issue as we might think. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, what I do, I'm, I'm you know I'm a theonomist, uh, and um, I do point people at times to to some of Dr. White's messages when he walks through the law of God and he shows the general equity and how it could be applied today, I think in those cases, look, we're not we're not far apart at all. There are small differences that do sometimes really finally devolve down to differences in eschatology and the belief about the victory of God in history. But I don't think all of us are as far apart as we might think on this. Um, I think we're actually pretty consistently together. I think a lot of times it's just a matter of um, confusion about definitions or what are you actually saying um, and so, you know, for me, uh, fundamentally, I'm more in the stream of uh, Puritan way of thinking in terms of the law of God and the kingdom of God is victorious in the world. And, you know, I, 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 not everybody's a fan of the Puritans in, in how they thought about those things. I know that um, I'm, I'm more in that stream. Um, and I think that I think we're all much closer than we think on this issue. And I think it just it's a matter of conversation. We need to start talking more. We need to start trying to graciously understand one another more. And um, I think once that takes place, we're going to find that we're not that far apart. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that that clarification was made because I don't want Dr. White executing me for people <laughs> thinking that he was a theonomist. But, but th- this brings up an interesting point. You are indeed a rarity because not only is it rare for Baptists to be uh, post-millennialists, but you are a Reformed Baptist who is also a theonomist, which you must admit is very rare, isn't it? Um, 
Yeah, I, I suppose it is um, in, in modern examples and cases. Look at my, my Presbyterian friend is in the back right now, laughing right now through the glass at me. Uh, Mark, <laughs> Mark, Mark, Mark Presby, and we, I love him, and I have a great deal of respect for him. I mean, almost all my heroes are Presbyterian. So he's smiling at me right now, loving this moment. Um, it, it may be, it may be a little, uh, off, um, in, in the sense of what's, what's the norm for Reformed Baptists, but, um, for me, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to be cliche here, and I don't want to try to be high and mighty in this place, but for me, honestly, um, I, I believe that the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is, is an amazing confession of faith. I believe to it, I hold to it, and, um, but for me, in the end, what I'm held captive to is the scriptures. And mm-hmm. while I hold that confession as premier and amazing and beautiful and, and consistent, um, if somebody says, well, I think that you're off on the confession here, I, I will ultimately say, well, I don't think that I am, but um, I, I want to hold to the scriptures as, as supreme in, in these discussions. All right, let's go to our listener questions, at least some of them. Uh, my name is Daniel from Sydney, Australia. I attend a Reformed Baptist church, and my church and I have looked into three major eschatological positions, pre-mill, post-mill, and amill. Would you agree that your eschatology position affirms how you understand all of Scripture and not just revelation or other prophetic language in the Scriptures? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I actually did not come to a post-millennial understanding of the victory of God in history um, from a reading of Revelation initially. Um, it really was an overarching um, macro view of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation of what God says about the kingdom of the Messiah. That's where this all comes down to. It really does. People get confused and say, oh, it's just so much to take in. There's so many things to read. And that's true. There are a lot of things to read. But it really comes down to just simple questions. And, it, and it's really this. Um, did Jesus bring the kingdom in the first century on time and as planned? Did that actually take place? And if the answer is yes, um, then you have to move to the next question, and that is this. What does the Old and New Testament say about the victory of that kingdom in history? And that, that's real time on earth, in the physical world. What does it actually say? And I think that if you can answer those two questions with the scriptures in front of you, I, I obviously we, brothers and sisters want to debate on this issue, but I do believe that if you lay the scriptures on the text out, you would see that not only did Jesus actually bring the kingdom, and that is actually a present reality where he's reigning now. Um, but the Bible tells us, I think, the, the full picture of what it's going to look like when Jesus actually completes that kingdom's victory and delivers the kingdom over to the Father when he's done. And I think we can't really get away from the fact that it's total victory, and it includes the transformation of not just individuals, but the world itself. Um, and so my, my, my view is, I think, uh, not coming from a picture of just simply revelation, because like, here's the thing, there are post-millennialists that do disagree on certain uh, aspects or components of the book of Revelation. Um, some are more historicists in a sense, some are more partial preterists. Um, so there are, there are post-millennialists that do have disagreements on how exactly do we, do we interpret rightly the book of Revelation, but the overarching foundational issues are the, are what we hold to, and, and I think, so my view would be starting in Genesis and moving all the way through, what does God say about the kingdom, its timing, its nature, and its victory? Uh, just before I go to the second question from a listener, uh, would you find yourself more in the partial preterist camp or the futurist camp? Uh, partial preterist. 
Um, I do believe uh, that Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, those parallel passages do um, refer to the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the final dissolution of the Old Covenant order. It was defunct at the, the cross and the resurrection, of course, um, but there were parts and pieces still hanging around, and a lot of the passages that refer to the coming of God, the coming of Christ in judgment are referring to the very soon coming of Christ in judgment upon that generation, the destruction of the Old Covenant order completely, all of its parts and pieces. The Hebrews refers to it as the shaking of the heavens and the earth. Um, that, I believe, is what that's about. And I believe that Revelation is a book of victory for first century uh, pre-fall of Jerusalem saints. Uh, the, the book comes as an encouragement that Jesus is about to act. He's about to come, and he's about to vindicate them and destroy. He's going to destroy the harlot. He's about to destroy the harlot, which is what God called Israel as a covenant breaker in the Old Testament repeatedly. He's coming to destroy the harlot who is, who is persecuting the saints. And the, the beast, Rome, is about to turn on that harlot and destroy her. So you really have, I think, the vision and revelation of the soon coming judgment of Jesus upon the covenant breakers to make way for the bride of Christ to invite the world to come and drink. We have Jim in Troy, Missouri. Since Israel was not commanded to enforce their borders, do we in America have the right to enforce our borders? And by enforce, I mean we don't let anyone cross our borders unless they are already a citizen or they are, they have a temporary visa. That's Jim in uh, Troy, Missouri asked that question. Yeah, I think that that question could be answered um, in a number of different ways. I know it's a short time we have today, so I will say this, that what the law of God does command us to do is to, is to, is to make sure that we love and we offer help and, and hope to those who sojourn among us and to the strangers among us. So here's what we know about the law of God specifically regarding uh, foreigners or strangers among us, is that we are to do good to them, we are to love them, we are to give them justice to make sure that they are protected. And so what, what is unquestionable about the law of God with respect to the alien among us is to do justice to them, to love them, to care for the sojourner and the alien among us. Um, when it comes to questions about how does it work out in a modern society with the, with, the, with the government looking to the law of God as a standard of justice, I think that it would definitely be very different than we see right now. Um, it would be different in terms of um, uh, wouldn't be as strict as borders, absolutely not. But I, I do believe you would definitely have the law of God giving you um, specific direction regarding quarantine, uh, the things for disease, and those sorts of things that, that we did see early on in America's history um, with Ellis Island and stuff like that. We, we even saw issues of quarantine and protecting the public from people who might have diseases. I think those things are consistent. Um, our our current position on immigration and things like that is is definitely newer in terms of how we have done immigration in the world in the past, particularly even how the church functioned and faced the issue of immigration. Uh, it is different how we handle it today. Um, I do believe that you can make a very good case that the way that we handle aliens and sojourners among us is is in many ways unbiblical and unjust. Um, but again, that's a very, very broad discussion, and I think there's there's people that have written um, uh, just excellent stuff on this. I would uh, I would look up any kind of theonomic commentary on immigration. Um, I know guys like Kenneth Gentry um, 
definitely have a particular view of how we should make sure we apply those principles and yet offer protection to society, which is also the protection of human life, uh, obeying the commandment to protect and preserve human life. And there, so I would, I would definitely look into the foundational issues. And I think the main thing for us to do would be look, look, look to God's law to say, what does he say is just regarding how we handle the alien among us and the sojourner among us? And we work everything out from that particular point. We do have uh, a, w- a listener who wishes to remain anonymous from New Jersey, uh, who says there is a lot going on that shows the faithful church is under siege. The recent Supreme Court of the United States decision, militant Islam, economic foundations chipping away with debt. How does a post-millennial eschatology reconcile these things to its hope for kingdom advance? Oh, very, very, very good question. And I think one of the, um, I think one of the strongest emotionally laden arguments against post-millennialism um, is, is this particular question. And I think it comes from a misunderstanding of what post-millennialists actually believe. And I think when we say, well, look around us, things are getting bad. Islam is on the rise. You've got our economic situation completely collapsing. And by the way, I would say the reason it's collapsing is because we don't look at God's word for his standards of economics, but that's another issue. Um, but what's going on? Like, we seem to be persecuted in many respects. And I would say um, looking at this question in that way is taking too small of a sampling of history. In other words, if you were to go backwards just a bit, a couple hundred years ago, you ask the question, how many Christians were in North America just a couple hundred years ago? How many Christians? And we have millions of Christians now in our nation that love Jesus, love the gospel. Um, and you ask the question also, like, the things are getting bad. I would say, well, think about what you're asking. You're saying are things are seem to be getting worse, but you're, you probably have in your library the ten Bibles leather-bound in your library. You go to church, and you pass five churches on the way. Um, you, you have relative good freedom in America at the moment. And again, I think the freedoms that we're losing is as a result of not obeying God's law. But I think it's too small of a sampling of history. And listen, post-millennialism does not say that it's only upward progress with no suffering. Absolutely not. There's going to be trials. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be moments where a nation like ours that essentially was in covenant with God, breaks covenant with God, and then God brings his sanctions upon that nation because of, of where they're going. God does deal with nations, and he does punish nations. That's clear in Scripture. And so I think what we see in history is an upward movement, because the Bible tells us that's what's going to happen. It's leaven that permeates the loaf of dough. It's all enemies under Jesus' feet. But it's going to come with suffering. It's going to come with moments of great disobedience and God acting to discipline or to judge. It's going to come where it's a mustard seed to large tree. It's going to be moments of growth and moments of failure. It's going to look like corruption in doctrine and then reformation. And then it's going to look like um, a nation that uh, obeys God and then maybe sins and turns away from God, and God acts in judgment, and he brings reformation and revival, and there's transformation again. If you look, Chris, um, at a map, these are, these are out right now. It's very, very cool. I, mean, I'm not, I wish I could point people to it, but it's amazing to look at. If you look at a history of Christianity in the world and sort of a, of, of a, of a map that shows what did it look like as it grew, you see it looks like a, a balloon that is inflating, and then deflating, and then boom, big inflating, and then deflating, and then big inflating, and then deflating. I mean, if you think about this, Chris, it's crazy. I know you know this, 
Um, cause you're, you're really old. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you think about the fact that I, I heard the gospel for the first time in the late nineties. And, um, when I first, I was I never went to church. Um, wasn't raised in a Christian home, but when I was in the church, I remember friends asking me to go on missions trips with them to smuggle Bibles into China. And I remember like thinking about it, like I might do this. And I remember them telling me, like, look, you might actually get arrested. You might actually go to a, a jail for the rest of your life. Like, we were talking in the late 90s about smuggling Bibles into China, and you might lose your life, or you might go to jail for good smuggling Bibles into China. And the crazy thing is, it is 2015, and there was an article that recently went out that said that China is on its way in the next 10 or 15 years becoming, you know, becoming the most Christian nation. That's insane. Who would have ever thought? That would have taken place. And so the progress of the gospel is a steady progress upward with difficulty along the way. But here's the point. Where does it end? All I would ask our brothers and sisters to do is this. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Read Paul's history of the Christian faith going forward. And what he says is that Jesus is reigning now until he's put every enemy under his feet, and the very last one is death. And that's when Jesus delivers the kingdom over to the Father, when every enemy is destroyed and everything's put into subjection to him. So what do I know? That despite my circumstances, not doing newspaper exegesis, the Bible says Jesus wins. Amen. And Jesus does win. That we can all agree on. Um, now, years ago, I remember hearing distinctly a Calvinistic Baptist who was speaking against theonomy at a conference. He was bringing up the Puritans and their abuse of power against Baptists and so on, uh, not to mention the uh, magisterial reformers uh, against the Anabaptists. Uh, you, as a Baptist and a theonomist, uh, is your view of the civil government in the, during the millennium, is this going to extend, the penal code, is it going to extend towards heretics, which... Depending upon who's in power, you might be one because you're a Baptist. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, since you are a rarity amongst uh, theonomists, the vast majority either being Presbyterian or Reformed Anglican or something, uh, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, it's a good question, a very important one. And I would say this, um, as a foundation, just to start the discussion, um, when we look in history at failures in regard to the law of God, I want to say that those failures are so limited and far between that compared to the failures of a man-centered government, an autonomous, non-God-loving government, it's, it's not even comparable. Like, for example, someone could say, look, under a Puritan style of government, you know, they, they, they did this stuff. This was, this was evil. This was bad. I want to say, yeah, and look how they were not being consistent with Scripture at that point. They were acting in contradiction to their standards, their professed standards, but look, if we say, well, look, we have these, these witch trials or this, and there's, you know, these five people or ten people that died here or there, I would say, compare that to 55 million babies in 40 years. Compare, compare the failures of Christians who didn't get it right by actually not acting consistently with the scriptures to a government today that oppresses the poor and the widow, does not give justice to the orphan, the, the system of government today that slaughters babies wholesale, daily, 3,000 babies murdered in our nation today. Today, when you listen to this broadcast, by the end of the day, 3,000 babies will die. And I ask the question, 
are, are we to look at a system of government that attempts to look to God's law to appeal to his law as a standard, um, or are we to just say God's no longer concerned with justice and we just let justice run rampant and people become victimized? I mean, I think it's very clear we need to look to God's standard. Now, watch, I'm going to say this. It does not mean, when we say we look to God's law as a standard, that it is a complete bringing over the law of God and dropping it on society. There are differences. And the New Testament, here's, here's our hermeneutic. The New Testament defines those differences. And we have to go right there, uh, Jeff. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Apologiachurch.com and Apologiaradio.com are his websites. And I hope all of you listening always remember that Jesus Christ is a far greater Savior than you are a sinner.